Hello and welcome to the Thorax podcast. My name is Kate. I'm one of the social media editors for the journal. With me today are John Kim and Anna Podolanchuk, who are joining us all the way from America. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us here. You're very welcome. And I want to say a special thank you to you both because this is actually one of the first podcasts that we're recording. So we're very excited and we're very excited to have you with us. The reason you're here today is because you recently published a paper in Thorax, Potential Risk Screening and Prognostication Tools in Interstitial Lung Disease. But before we go on to talk about that, I just wanted to give you both the opportunity to introduce yourselves. So Anna, starting with you, uh, where are you from? What do you do? Sure. So I am a pulmonologist and a researcher at Weill Cornell in uh, New York City. Uh, I clinically see patients with interstitial lung disease, and I do research that focuses on early risk factors for interstitial lung disease for pulmonary fibrosis and trying to find ways to try to uh, identify patients and diagnose them earlier. Awesome. And John, where are you from? I am an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Uh, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually did my fellowship training in pulmonary and critical care at Columbia University. And that's how I first got involved in doing research related to pulmonary fibrosis and continuing that research here at UVA with a particular focus of utilizing omics platforms um, to try to better understand the underlying biology of this disease with potential diagnostic and therapeutic implications. Um, so do you two know each other? Do you work together often? Or? <laughs> yes, we work together quite a bit. We were both pulmonary fellows at Columbia, and we both became interested in, in this type of research and doing research in interstitial lung disease and early pulmonary fibrosis through our mentor at the time at Columbia, mm-hmm. who was David Letterer. And now we've moved on to different institutions, but we continue to collaborate very closely yeah, Anna was, I think, four years ahead of me. So um, I actually worked for her, like I was trained by her. Uh, we worked, yeah, we worked together in the ICU. And so I learned a lot both clinically and research-wise from Anna. So I feel very lucky to continue to work with her. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, um, so we'll, we'll move on to talk about the paper itself then, which is called MUC5B Telomere Length and Longitudinal Quantitative Interstitial Lung Changes, the MISA Lung Study. So I wanted to start by asking you actually what the MISA lung study is. I've been on both your PubMeds and it pops up quite a lot. So I just wanted to know what it is. Sure. Yeah. So MESA stands for the Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis. And this is a United States-based population cohort that's funded by the National Institute of Health. And originally it was designed to look at cardiovascular disease in community-dwelling adults from six U.S. communities. But kind of with a lot of population-based studies, you kind of look at other diseases. And so Graham Barr, who's at Columbia University, uh, he helped design this ancillary study called the Mesa Lung Study to look at all sorts of different lung measurements in this cohort. And so this included spirometry, but also lung imaging, including CT scan. And so this is an ongoing prospective cohort, again, of these community-dwelling adults. And it originally enrolled about 6,800 adults at the time, starting in 2000, and the most recent follow-up exam visit being in 2016 to 2018. So we have almost 20 years of data collected amongst these participants. 
Cool. So it seems like it's a really good repository of information for you and it's been helpful. So in terms of this paper, um, what is MUC5B? MUC5B, so a promoter variant in the MUC5B gene is the strongest known genetic risk factor for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And it's also associated with other types of fibrotic interstitial lung diseases. These diseases are generally poorly understood. And we know that genetics are uh, affect and contribute strongly to uh, susceptibility for these diseases. But we think that the disease ultimately results from a combination of genetic factors and environmental exposures. And so MUC5B has been linked to these fibrotic interstitial lung diseases and also has been linked to early signs on CT scan uh, that can potentially result in uh, interstitial lung disease. And so these early changes on CT scans are called interstitial lung abnormalities. And MUC5B is strongly associated with interstitial lung disease, uh, interstitial lung abnormalities as well. And so we wanted to look at uh, the association of MUC5B with quantitative changes on CT uh, using a computer-based automated measure of interstitial changes. Uh, and this measure is called high attenuation areas or HAA. From looking at the paper, it seems like it can be difficult to catch interstitial lung disease early, to put it in really simple terms. Is this um, a way that you think that you might be able to identify patients at risk of developing interstitial lung disease? Or Yeah, so I think there is a lot of interest in trying to identify these adults during the earlier stages of disease, like Anna mentioned. And there's a lot of research in the tools to identify it. And so the interstitial lung abnormalities, or ILA, it's a qualitative assessment. So you're really dependent on a radiologist or a pulmonologist to look at the scan and say if there's any abnormalities. But if you talk to a radiologist or a pulmonologist, they say it can take a lot of time. So there's a lot of interest in more of these automated quantitative methods on CT scan. And so uh, we've studied high attenuation areas where we do see some associations where if you have more high attenuation areas on the lung scan, it may capture some of these early abnormalities in the lung that might be related to interstitial lung disease. And so whether it's high attenuation areas or other quantitative methods, uh, whether these can be used at least to potentially identify those people who may be at risk and then subsequently undergo other testing to sort of see whether they really are at risk of developing interstitial lung disease. Yeah, I think just building on what John said, we've used this tool, um, this automated tool to identify high attenuation areas. And previously, we've uh, been able to show that this, uh, this measure of HAA or high attenuation areas is associated with uh, other uh, changes that are potentially suggestive of early interstitial lung disease. So things like biomarkers um, of uh, lung remodeling and epithelial cell injury, which we know are processes that occur during the early stages of pulmonary fibrosis and ultimately visually uh, visible changes on CT. So these interstitial lung abnormalities on uh, follow-up CT scans, HAA is strongly associated with them, also with lower lung function on follow-up CT, and both with all-cause mortality and ILD-related hospitalizations and mortality. So we do think that it's a good tool uh, to identify 
quantitatively early intersocial changes on CT scan. What did you find then when you conducted this study? Yeah, so in this study, uh, we found that MUC5B, this genetic variant in the MUC5B gene, is uh, strongly associated with progression of this quantitative measure called high attenuation area, or HAA, over 18 years of, on on serial CT scans, over 18 years of follow-up. In addition to looking at the genetic variants that are related to this change in high attenuation areas over time, we actually looked at whether the changes in high attenuation areas over time was associated with more clinically relevant outcomes, such as survival and interstitial lung disease itself. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that increases in high attenuation areas over time were strongly associated with a higher risk of overall death. And it was also associated with a higher risk of interstitial lung disease-related outcomes, such as death and hospitalization. And to kind of put this in perspective of high attenuation areas, um, we also looked at the association of like cigarette smoking with high attenuation areas. And I think Mm -hmm. most people will agree that cigarette smoking is like a very strong risk factor for lung disease, including interstitial lung disease. And what we found was that an increase of cigarette smoke per day, so let's say if you smoked about 10 cigarettes per day, you had an increase in the high attenuation areas of, of about 5%. Um, in relation to that, for every copy of this genetic variant, the MUC5B, you had an increase in high attenuation areas of about 2.6% um, over time. So it's comparable. And I think what we were really interested about these results is that it's a step of kind of looking at different clinical risk factors and genomic risk factors together to, again, try to identify these adults who might be at risk of developing interstitial lung disease in the future. I just want to add to that, that we also looked at telomere length and associations between telomere length, shorter telomere length, and uh, the progression of these high attenuation areas. And we found that cross-sectionally, shorter telomere length was associated with uh, more HAA. So mm-hmm. I'm suggestive that it may uh, influence the risk uh, for, for early uh, pulmonary fibrosis. Um, but we did not find over t- that over time, telomere length was associated with uh, progression of these HAAs. We did find that shorter telomere length modified the association between MUC5B and uh, progression of HAA, suggesting that there may be some interplay between uh, telomere length and MUC5B and that telomere length potentially may reflect it. So it's a measure of cellular senescence and it's uh, it reflects uh, both genetic mechanism, but it also reflects all the environmental exposures that people are exposed to. So there may be some, we may be picking up uh, early interaction between potentially environmental exposures and genetic risk for these fibrotic interstitial lung diseases. Okay, so that's all very interesting. And in doing this, when you are able to identify these patients who are at increased risk of interstitial lung disease, either through their genetic um, risk factors or through their environmental risk factors. Is there anything that we can do at the moment to halt the progression of these people into interstitial lung disease? um, Or is that something for the future? 
that's really for the future. And okay. uh, I think that's the next step that we're all very interested in is really trying to use a combination of these measures to risk stratify patients uh, at risk, mm-hmm. to find out who is at the highest risk for the sh- for short-term progression uh, using whether it's HAA or some other um, more sophisticated tools that incorporate texture-based analysis or uh, radiomic uh, methodology to um, identify people at high risk in combination with potentially blood biomarkers or clinical exposures or genetics. Okay. And um, what's your plan sort of going forward, the both of you? Do you have any research in the pipeline that you want to talk about? Yes. Um, thanks for asking. So um, I think an important thing is that we only looked at this in one cohort. Granted, it's comprised of six separate U.S. communities. So um, the next steps is probably looking to replicate these findings, both in population-based cohorts, as well as maybe more higher-risk cohorts like smoker-based cohorts. So um, that is sort of the next steps of this research. And I think, as Anna suggested, we're not, you know, uh, stuck with HAA. We don't, we're not saying that HAA is the best tool. If anything, we are hopeful that this paper, along with other papers coming out, it kind of inspires researchers to kind of look at these automated quantitative methods and see kind of what are they picking up? Are they picking up maybe different things that ultimately we can use together to, again, identify these people who are at risk of developing urinary lung disease so that we can learn more about potential treatments and methods to try to really prevent the fulminant development of this disease. So along, alongside uh, you two, who else um, contributed to this work? And is there anyone else that you um, feel did a particularly good job? Yeah, now we, we owe a lot to Graham Barr, who was the architect of Mesa Lung, whose research grants funded a lot of these scans, um, as well as Eric Hoffman from the University of Iowa, who actually measured the high attenuation areas using the software. And then a lot of thanks to Anya Manichaikul out of the University of Virginia, as well as Rasika Mathias at Johns Hopkins University, who helped um, get us the genetic data, the MUC5B and the telomere length, uh, and enable us to do this research. So, uh, And then ultimately, a lot of thanks to the MESA study and the MESA participants in allowing us to do this research. Mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you very much to John Kim and Adapada Lanchuk. For anyone who is interested in reading the study, it is available on the Thorax BMJ website and it will be linked um, in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Thorax podcast. I'm Kate. We will be publishing regular podcasts about some of the best content of the latest issue of the journal. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe on your preferred platform to get it directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please get in touch through our social media channels or leave us a review on the Thorax podcast page on iTunes. Thank you very much and see you next month.